Jonah chapter 2, and we'll begin reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. Then Jonah prayed out unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardst my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about all thy billows, and thy waves passed over me. Then, I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. Beloved, we take up this prophecy, and of course this is a text that we're all quite familiar with. We know not only the accounts, we know not only the storyline, we know even the very words that we're taking up this evening quite well. But what's important for us to keep in mind is not just what we have before us in the text, but what the scriptures teach us about its context. The scriptures may not tell us much about the reception of this book, but it tells us much about the congregation, the church to whom it was originally sent. When this scroll, when this codex first came to Israel, it came to a people who said very loudly, very clearly, we know God. They were a people that when they were confronted with the thought of their own sin, they responded with the idea that God did not see iniquity in them. And then when the prophet said, all the afflictions that you are facing are tokens of God's displeasure, they said our afflictions have no connection with our iniquities. That's the book, well rather this is the congregation to which this book is initially sent. It belongs to a church who professed God. It belongs to a church who professed even faithfulness to God, and yet nevertheless were aliens to the kind of repentance that we have in the second chapter of this book. We come to Jonah 2 because this shows us, even though it's perhaps the most neglected part of the book, it shows us what really is the heart of this text. If the Lord God is bringing to Israel as much as he is to Nineveh a faithful account of what it is to turn to the living God, Well, friend, the second chapter is a lively picture of what that is. It shows us repentance in its various characteristics. It shows us the activity of the penitent as they approach God, especially after they've been chastened by the Lord. Now, as we took out the first portion of the second chapter, the last last midweek, we said before that these first two verses provide for us something of an introduction. These first two verses tell us that Jonah's focus is primarily 
on the distress that he encountered in the sea, under God's hand, and then also his experience of deliverance after the fish swims to the shore and after Jonah is released. Now, as we took up verses 3 and 4 last week, we saw here the prayer that is made from the belly of the fish. The man here, our prophet, is in the midst of the seas. The floods are all around him. And then in the fourth verse he tells us, it was then, it was then that he said this, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. And you remember what we said there was this, of course, is a picture of real repentance. The man acknowledges, rather than protesting God's chastening hand, he acknowledges even tacitly here that the Lord has been just. But even with that, you see here that the man's faith is still lodged in hope upon Jehovah. He will, he says at the end of the fourth verse, look again toward thy holy temple. That place, of course, where atonement is made. That place where the gospel through brick and through mortar, through fire and through blood, typifies the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciling sinners, high-handed sinners, to the God whom they've offended. Well, that brings us to our text then this evening, which are verses 5 and 6. In these verses, we have a change. As we said before, the prophet is looking in the second chapter both to the affliction that he encountered in the seas and in the fish, and he's also looking to that moment in his deliverance. In other words, the text oscillates between that moment of being under the hand of God's chastening and also that moment under deliverance when he can reflect on what the Lord has done. In verses 5 and 6, you have Jonah reflecting now as one who has been delivered from the hand of chastening. And here's what he says. Allow me to read these two verses once again. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The death closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. If we stop there, friend, what we see here is a descent. The prophet begins, if you will, in the fifth verse at the surface. The waters compassed me about. It says here, even to the soul. Now that word soul in the Hebrew is the word nephesh. Which, of course, does often refer to in the scriptures that's that internal disposition of man, sometimes referred to as the heart. It also refers, of course, to that everlasting part of man, his actual soul. But that word also is used to describe such body parts as the throat, the mouth. And as you're holding that particular text with what comes next, it seems fair for us to translate nephesh here as throat. He's going to discuss in the very next line the weeds being wrapped around his head. And so what you have here is a lively, even a graphic picture of descent. It's not hard for us to grasp what the prophet is communicating. He was on the surface of the waves. And then, in the very next moment, you find him under that surface and descending. And that descent continues down into the weeds, down into what he calls here the bases of the mountains. Uh, now, the basis of the mountains there simply refers to really the foundation of the seas, where the mountains go into the seas and we can't see them from the surface any longer. And this is what Jonah says he experienced. It was a gradual descent, but a certain descent. But as you're looking at this, I want you to notice, friend, the part that we did not read from verse 6. Not only is he describing himself going down, 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 he says here, 
in the very last line, Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Now, you might have a note there that translates that word corruption as to pit. Uh, this is very common use of the word throughout the scriptures. To give you a few examples, take Job for instance. When Job speaks about the Lord God redeeming a soul, he says this, God is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. Our word for corruption in our text. I have found a ransom. Take Psalm 16. That word in our authorized translation is also translated corrupt. But note the parallel. It reads, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption, in which hell and corruption stand very much as parallels. Sheol, the place of the dead. And then again, in the book of Proverbs, you have this. As he describes the, the home of an adulterous woman, he says this, The dead are there, her guests are in the depths of hell. The word depths there is actually the word for, for ours uh, that we have here rendered corruption. And so, friend, what Jonah is saying here, as we summarize this, is that he saw himself in the grave. He saw himself as one entombed. And what you can't miss then as you're looking at this text, as, as he surveys his experience under the chastening hand of God, it is one of progression. It is one of extremity leading to extremity, finally ending in this point where he almost sees himself entombed, belonging to the rest of those who have died in the sea. Now this teaches us some very basic things, doesn't it? Jonah is reflecting, of course, on the hand of God. He's not relating to us happenstance. He's not relating to us the activities of chance. He's saying, this is what the Lord God has done. Which, friend, that means then that Jonah is recognizing that even the chastening hand of God often leads to extremities. Often is harsh. Not in the sense that it's undue, but in the sense that the soul feels its pain and feels as though it's been led to an extremity. But what you can't miss either, friend, is Jonah reflects both on the chastening and on the deliverance. Everything here he attributes to the hand of God. I make that remark because of what we said last midweek. As you look at the fourth verse again, actually if you go all the way to the third verse, there the prophet describes all of the affliction, all of the instruments of his chastening as being the Lord's, his possession. Note what he says, thou hast cast me into the deep. And then he says this, thy billows and thy waves are passed over me. The chastening hand of God is his. It is God who's doing the work. But you can't miss at the end of the sixth verse this either. Note what he says. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord, my God. My friend, that teaches us, of course, that Jonah recognizes that both chastening and deliverance are from the hand of God. But it also, as we step back and warm to our main point this evening, it teaches us that as Jonah exemplifies the truly penitent, that repentance includes, my friend, the acknowledgement, both of God's chastening and of his deliverance. True repentance acknowledges both God's chastening and his deliverance. And tacitly, but no less really, it does so with thanks. Our main theme then for this evening is simply this. Thanksgiving for temporal mercies is a mark 
of true repentance. Thanksgiving for temporal mercies is a mark of true repentance. And I want us to see this briefly under three headings. I want us to see how the text holds out to us the penitent's distress is his deliverance, and finally, his declaration. And so first of all, take the man's distress. If you see here this picture that you have in the fifth and the beginning of the sixth verse, you have a man who cannot deliver himself. He's under the waves. Well, first he begins above the waves, and then that frothing sea plunges him down. And then as that sea takes him deeper and deeper into its own depths, Jonah describes himself as one who is incapable of pulling himself out. Note how he describes it here. He describes himself as having his weeds weeds wrapped around his head. That means, friend, of course, Jonah is stuck. There's no way in his own poetic rendition of what has happened to pull himself out. And if that weren't enough, note what he says in the sixth verse. I went down to the bottoms of the earth. The earth with her bars was about me. The idea there is the earth formed a kind of prison. And here Jonah says very plainly, through all of these kinds of metaphors, that he stands as one incapable of pulling himself out from the chastening hand of God. He stresses, in other words, his misery. He stresses his impotence. But what you can't miss is what has gone before. As I've just said already, friend, Jonah is not describing these things as things that have just happened to him. These are things that God has done. These are God's billows and God's waves. This is how Jonah sees it. And so if he finds himself in these depths, friend, he says, all of these things have been brought upon me by the Lord. Now what does this teach us? Friend, in the distress that he experiences, well, the true penitent becomes sensible of judgment. Allow me to illustrate that through a positive example. Take Ephraim through the prophet Jeremiah. When Ephraim is brought to repentance, how does Ephraim carry out that work? Here's what Jeremiah says. Thou hast chastised me, he says in Ephraim's stead, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. After that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed. Yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. That's Jeremiah 31 verses 18 to 19. Nobody for him saying, I recognize that God's hand has been upon me. It's the very same thing that we sang in Psalm 119.75. There the psalmist, of course, tells us that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. The man, in other words, here is sensible of the Lord's hand. Perhaps it would be best now to illustrate this negatively. What are the negative examples that we have of this in the scriptures? Well, friend, they're, they're all through the Old Testament and the New as well. Take just a few. Take Isaiah, for instance. God hath poured upon him, that's Judah, the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. And it hath set him on fire round about, and note this, yet he knew it not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. Here the prophet is describing the impenitent. And what is one of the marks of the impenitent? The Lord has chastened them with affliction. And note what he says here, they laid it not to heart. Take another example from Hosea. 
They're writing very much to the same congregation to which the prophecy of Jonah was sent. He writes this, Strangers have devoured his strength, that's Israel's, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. You see, friend, what the scriptures teach here is that those who are penitent are those who are sensitive to the chastening hand of God. And those who are impenitent are described as being utterly insensible. They find themselves with gray hair. They find themselves under the rod of God. And as the prophet says, they lay it not to heart. What we can't miss is that Jonah then exemplifies in scriptural terms the truly penitent. He recognizes the hand of God upon him. Friend, this is the very thing that we, you and I encounter in society. I mean, the one who is truly a menace to society, of course, is the one who is absolutely unfeeling. You know that as well as I do. A person who is incapable of feeling. Incapable of feeling any pain inflicted on him, perhaps for correction, is a man simply uncontrollable. A man who is truly a menace to the rest of the civilized world. But maybe take it even more more intimately in the home. Perhaps you know this kind of experience. Where a family falls apart. Because a child no longer responds to the loving discipline of a parent. The child becomes insensible to the rod. They no longer feel the pain. And so they no longer really deal with the correction that's tendered to them. You see here, friend, in Jonah you have a positive example of the opposite. A man who is sensitive to the Lord's dealings with him. And beloved, as you look at this, there's a very basic application. While it's certainly not the case that every affliction is brought on because of particular sins, if we are continually engaged in known and particular sins, we should expect, we should expect the chastening hand of God. We should. I'm afraid, friend, for some reason that is controversial today. But that is part and parcel of biblical piety. We will not be sensible of divine judgment. We will not be sensible of his fatherly, paternal chastening either. Unless we know that continuing in known sin invites the chastening hand of the Lord. But secondly, friend, this also reminds us too. That we are to be those who acknowledge chastening as a token of divine displeasure. I want to illustrate this friend in a way that perhaps you already know it from yourself. You take a man, a woman who finds themselves caught either in gambling or substance abuse or whatever have you. And you approach them by telling them, of course, don't you see that these things are wrecking your life? Don't you see that this thing is destroying your bank account, disintegrating your relationships, causing you all kinds of incalculable harm? And they'll say, well, of course that's the case. They'll appreciate you sympathizing. But then, friend, if you, if you raise the next point, you'll lose them immediately. If you say to them, well, don't you believe that this is the hand of God upon you? Suddenly, friend, you'll find that they're very quick to protest. They'll acknowledge their misery to a point, but never connect it to the Lord's displeasure. 
Jonah is entirely unlike that. Beloved, as you see him here, he says that the storm was sent for his cause. That's chapter 1. And then he says all of these things have come from the hand of God. The truly penitent are those who are sensitive, not only to the misery that they find themselves in, but they're sensitive also to the God who's brought it upon them. But that brings us secondly to the deliverances we have in this text. And as I said before, friend, you can't miss that the prophet here is stressing that of himself, he could not deliver himself. He was utterly impotent. And he illustrates this really in the sixth verse again. He says here, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. So thought Jonah. And so would any rational being looking at Jonah's, Jonah's situation. He found himself under the waves, plunged deeper and deeper. And friends, certainly there was no way for Jonah or for any other man to pull him from that. But as you look at this text, you see that Jonah is not just using this for poetic embellishment. What does this teach us? Jonah could have simply said, I nearly drowned. And that would have communicated the historical fact, fine enough. But instead, Jonah stresses the the digression, his descent, and why. Well, friend, he's doing this to illustrate a very simple fact. If If he is to be delivered, you should only expect that deliverance to come from the hand of God. By emphasizing this in the way that he is, friend, he is taking us all the way back to a very fundamental idea. Jonah's only hope to escape the chastening hand of God is God. That's the point. And friend, as he lays this stress on here, we can't miss that he's also telling us something about the deliverance. Jonah's experience was simply what the prophet prophet himself preaches. There is none that can deliver out of the Lord's hand. He says, I will work, and who shall let it? You see, friend, as Jonah reflects on this deliverance, what does he say? He says it very explicitly. Yet hast thou brought out my life from corruption. Thou hast done it. And you see, beloved, that too is a mark of the penitent. Penitents acknowledge that all good is from God alone. All alleviation from distress, whether brought on for particular sins in particular cases or not. Those who are truly penitent see all these things, their goods, coming from the hand of God alone. Take Ezra as an example. Friend, he finds himself in a generation of the church that is largely defecting. He finds himself in a a generation that is very slow to obedience. And so, as he seeks to lead the people along in corporate repentance, how does he do so? He goes to God with these words, A little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place. Ezra says very pointedly, I am looking to the grace of God. I am looking to the goods that we have experienced as coming from his hand alone. This is how Ezra says repentance must begin. And this is precisely how Jonah exemplifies repentance for us. He traces the good that he has directly back to the Lord. And friend, you can't miss, of course, that this is then necessarily a part of repentance. I say that for two reasons. I say that because of what the Apostle says both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Take what he says to the Jew. In Romans 2, he writes thus, 
Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Note what the apostle is saying. It is the goodness of God that ought to be recognized when one is repenting. To really understand the goodness of God is in part an integral aspect of true penitence. Or take it as he writes to Gentiles, or preaches to Gentiles rather. Acts 14. God left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Note what he says, the goodness that these heathens experienced was a witness. It was God's witness. And what, friend, what was that witness crying? Repent. Repent. Friend, you can understand why this is a necessary part of repentance, can't you? I'm sure you've experienced it yourself, but imagine just that child. That child who's fallen out with his parents. That child who has distanced himself from his mother and his father for some time. All of a sudden being acquainted with all of the care and all of the love that his parents showed him. All of the goodness that he experienced from their hand. Unless, unless that child is utterly hardened, what will the reflection of that goodness do to them? Well, friend, it should certainly melt them. And you see, beloved, when those who are repenting are truly engaged in the work, what's going to take place? Friend, they're going to see that in God they have received so much. The God whom they've offended, whom they have spurned, has been so good to them. I don't mean to belabor the point, but I often wonder about those children who, are, who, who kill their own parents. Would they ever wonder, friend, about this moment? The love that they were tendered to them. That the love that they experienced and the goodness that they had, would it one day melt them? Well, friend, we would certainly say that it should, wouldn't we? But you and I, in our sin, have offended our God even more egregiously. And he has even shown greater goodness than any earthly parent could. Even to the greatest sinner. Are we not melted by this? Beloved, if we are, then certainly this is a mark of true repentance. And that brings us lastly to the declaration that we have in this text. It's easy to overlook, but we can't miss it here. He says here, Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, the sixth verse, O Lord, my God. O Lord, my God. You see what's striking, friend, here is that Jonah, in the first chapter, sees himself as a man who must flee the presence of God, take up residence among heathens who do not know the Lord. And yet, friend, note what he says here. He owns Jehovah to be his God. He owns that all that God has done to him, he has done to him as his God. No, not just creator God. No, not just supreme potentate and judge of all. But what Jonah has experienced, both the chastening and the delivering hand. Oh friend, it was the hand of his God. The Lord his God was at work. And this shows us, friend, that real repentance deals with God in this way. In other words, we could say real repentance deals with God 
in covenant. He invokes here God's covenant name, Jehovah, and also his own particular ownership in him, my God. You see, friend, as he looks at his chastening, he doesn't see it as the reprobate might. Note how the reprobate could say that the Lord is dealing with them. He says, the prophet Hosea says this, Call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Jonah says, I'm not among that number. Jonah says that when the Lord chastened him, he didn't say to him, I will laugh at your calamity, I will mock when your fear cometh. Instead, when Jonah says, it was the Lord Jehovah, my God, who both afflicted and delivered me. Friend, Jonah is simply saying that he belongs to that number described in Psalm 89. Where the Lord says, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. In other words, friend, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and only through him, he says Jehovah is his God. And he can say that, of course, because it is Christ alone. Christ alone who can say to us, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. What's striking about this, friend, is we can't miss that for Jonah, the rod was not punitive, it was paternal. And why was that the case? Because all punitive wrath would fall upon the Son of God. Christ was cast into the depths. Christ was cast into the deep places. Christ was cast into a tomb. The pains of the second death. And all that was left for Jonah was the loving sting of a fatherly rod. Because Jehovah was his God through it all. You see, friend, Christ received all wrath. He makes full payment. And our chastening were merely corrected. Justice exacts nothing from us in chastening. All justice is exacted upon Christ. And friend, this is the God whom Jonah sees. And this is the only God that we can come to if we would repent. But as we close, friend, there is a few points of application. The first, of course, is one of examination. This is why this book comes, of course, to Israel of old. Is this the kind of thing that marks our lives? Is this the kind of thing that we see replicated in our own hearts? Or friend, are we not marked by this kind of thankful obedience, thankful for the rod and for the deliverance? You see, the wicked are described thus, let favor be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. You see, friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss that Jonah shows to us how we are supposed to deal with both the chastening and the delivering hand of God. It is through faith in Christ and through thankful obedience. But the second point we can't miss either, beloved, is the point of consolation in this text. Note the difficulty Jonah faces. Friend, we, it would be very difficult for us to even imagine physically what falls upon the prophet here. The kind of claustrophobia cold and dark, the great questions that would loom in one's mind. 
And yet, through all this, friend, what you can't miss, and what Jonah himself confesses, is all these things were done by his God. All of these things were done to him then as a child by a father. And this shows us the blessedness of God's children, doesn't it? He who rules the wind and the wave, he who carries the rod, means your correction, not your destruction. Beloved, that means that every affliction that the people of God face is tendered to them in love, even if for particular transgressions they're chastened. How blessed is it to be in that place, where even the difficulties you face are for your good. It's not so with the wicked, ultimately. Not so. But for those who are in Christ, beloved, we can say with Jonah, even even with the psalmist, in faithfulness, the Lord has afflicted us. But as we close, friend, we can't miss that Israel failed to learn the lesson. But what was the lesson she failed to learn from this text? It was just this. That the God that we know in Christ, well, friend, his correction is as good as his rescue. You see, they failed to see that God was worthy of their whole hearts, not just for the good that they would receive, but even for the corrections that he would tender. It may be that we're not a people such as that. That we look lovingly to God for both, the rod and the plenty that he brings. Oh, my God.